0: Hey folks, you guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history, unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion, it's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com haunted. That's masterclass.com haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com slash haunted. I'll see you there. This is it. The time is finally here. We are about to celebrate my favorite holiday. And no, I don't mean National Spaghetti Day. That's it. I'm talking about Halloween. Parents and kids alike are gearing up for Halloween scrambling to put the final touches on costumes and jack-o'-lanterns, not to mention stocking up on candy for trick-or-treaters. People, myself included, throw their favorite scary movies on TV and place their most beloved horror novel next to their bedside. For me, at this point, it's just tradition to work my way through the entire Nightmare on Elm Street saga, Freddy vs. Jason reluctantly included. Poltergeist and Trick-or-Treat might as well just be on repeat. I also revisit some of my favorite horror novels. Stephen King has to make this list, of course because most of my favorite novels are by Stephen King. I revisit the stand in It more than I care to admit. When I'm feeling a little blocked when thinking of my next story, I often throw on the audiobook of one of the two and let the ideas flow. M-O-O-N. That spells inspiration. King's best-selling books overall are the non-horror Dark Tower series. While there are certainly horrific elements in those books, they are clearly more science fiction and fantasy than horror. But It has been a juggernaut for the writer since its publication in 1986 every year around Halloween, the sales of It take a jump. Sporting one of King's most horrifying characters in the form of Pennywise the Clown, It transcends the period it was written in, and remains a powerful story. If nothing else, this bestseller clarified for everyone there is absolutely nothing at all funny or comforting about clowns. I also like to go on and read the poem that inspired what is arguably the most popular Halloween movie ever. A movie that you can throw on at the beginning of October and run it clear through December and no one would bat an eye. I'm talking, of course, about The Nightmare Before Christmas. It's the perfect follow up to some of the more terrifying movies that are attached to the season. When I was a kid, I would always throw on an old VHS tape I had of The Simpsons episodes I taped off TV right after I watched something particularly scary. The Blue Cheese to My Horror Hot Wing. Something to quell the fear and let this kid get some sleep. If you're looking for some more Nightmare Before Christmas and are feeling a little freaked out from an episode of Haunted American History, I implore you to head over to the Disney on the Rocks podcast. They could be your blue cheese to my hot way, or something of that nature. Eric and Jeff are two dads who are rediscovering the Disney movies of their youth, and some of Disney's current films through the eyes of their children, all we're getting a nice buzz on. This week, in the spirit of the season, they are discussing The Nightmare Before Christmas, so stop on by and say hello. They are available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Tell them Chris sent you. The word Halloween has its origins from the Catholic Church, and is corrupted from All Hallows' Eve. All Hallows' Day and All Saints' Day is a Catholic day of observance in honor of saints on November 1st. All Hallows' Eve can be tracked back about 2,000 years to the pre-Christian Celtic festival held around November 1st called Samhain, which loosely translates to Summer's End in Gaelic. As ancient records are sparse and fragmentary, the exact nature of Samhain is not fully understood, but it was an annual communal meeting at the end of the harvest year, a time to gather resources for the winter months and bring animals back from the pastures. Samhain is also thought to have been the time to commune with the dead, taking place on the one night a year where the barrier between the living and the dead was at its thinnest. Bonfires were lit and rituals performed as part of a night many believed the real world and the world of the spiritual briefly intertwined. Malevolent spirits were said to roam free, leading many to perform any number of strange ceremonies and incantations as a way of warding off these evil specters. It was custom to go door-to-door dressed in costumes or disguises to recite verses in exchange for gifts fire fuels, and food that would go towards the annual Samhain feasts. These feasts were enjoyed alongside the souls of dead friends and loved ones, invited to attend with places set for them. Pranks were also commonplace, with many taking advantage of the roaming spirits to exact some playful revenge on a friend or foe. By the 19th century, Samhain celebrations had become Christianized by the church and renamed Halloween, amid concerns over Samhain's previous pagan roots. They were more commonplace across Ireland, with the traditions of pranks and door-to-door donations evolving into something-approaching trick-or-treats. The jack-o'-lantern custom is believed to come from Irish folklore about a drunk named Jack, who tricked Satan into climbing a tree, then carved an image of a cross in the trunk to help trap the devil. He struck a deal for Satan to leave his soul alone when he died, but then heaven wouldn't take him either, so he carried embers in a hollow turnip as he wandered eternal darkness. But it was an altogether different story in the United States. America's early puritanical leanings prohibited such celebrations, while holidays of any kind were almost non-existent. That all changed in the 1840s, when the advent of Ireland's devastating potato famine brought millions of Halloween-loving Irish immigrants over from across the Atlantic. Americans soon began embracing the traditions of Halloween, latching onto the tricks and treats as a meaning of letting off steam one night a year. Over the next few decades, the Halloween celebrations became more refined, with pranks kept to a minimum, while the costumes became more vivid and the treats evolved into offerings of something decidedly sweet. Pumpkins also replaced turnips when it came to carving the usual jack-o'-lanterns, which is great news for the United States because if you've ever seen a carved turnip, they are pure nightmare fuel. Pumpkin-producing states in the U.S. produced over a billion pounds of pumpkin during the season, with Illinois leading the country by producing 492 million pounds of the vined orange gourd. Pumpkin patches in California, Ohio, and Pennsylvania provide at least 100 million pounds. The value of all those pumpkins produced by those states is over $100 million. Today, Halloween is largely viewed as a distinctively American holiday that's invaded European culture. But in reality, it's precisely the opposite. So fill up the candy buckets, carve the pumpkin, and get ready to celebrate what's actually one of the most distinctively Irish celebrations on the calendar. Save for St. Patrick's Day, of course. Hey folks, you guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history, unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion, it's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com haunted. That's masterclass.com haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com slash haunted. I'll see you there. Author's Notes October 26th, 2020 When I first decided that I wanted to do a podcast, I was almost immediately sure of what the topic would be about. Stories of the occult and the supernatural have always piqued my interest. I love sitting around the proverbial campfire and sharing ghost stories with friends and family. Everybody has one. It was in the execution of gathering stories where I ran into the problem. I joined just about as many forums and talkbacks as I could find, dealing with the paranormal. It turns out, people really don't want to share their stories with a stranger on the internet. The very first episode of Haunted American History, Flight 87, is a story I've seen posted on various forums dozens of times over the past decade or so, and it always stuck with me. Some details and locations changed, but the core of the story stayed the same. I reached out to whomever I found the story posted by on the websites where they were posted, firstly to find out if they were the one who wrote it originally or if they were truly told the information firsthand like the tale suggests. I mostly came up with nothing. Most didn't ever respond. The ones who did just told me it was something they came across and wanted to adapt it themselves. It was during my research of the area around Atlantic Municipal Airport that I made the discovery of all the other horrible things that I spoke about in that episode. That was back in March of this year. That's 2020 for those of you listening in the future. And we all know what else happened in March of this year. This podcast was my plan to kill my time during the COVID-19 lockdowns, something to keep me busy and my mind off the news of the changing world around us. But that was it. I had one episode written and no luck finding anyone else to share their stories with me. I decided to shelve it. It was fun to think about and put together the first episode of the podcast, but that was it. It would sit in a folder on my desktop until the end of July. I never stopped researching, and my love of creepy stories never went away. It was a conversation that I was having with my wife on the summer night that something dawned on me that I never even thought of. The podcast came up again over dinner one night, and I simply brushed it off. I wasn't able to find anyone to share their stories with me. That's when she asked me the most simple question. What about your stories? Well, what about my stories? You see, ever since I can remember, I wanted to be a filmmaker. I still have notebooks with scripts written longhand from when I was a kid and countless thumb drives just full of them. It just never dawned on me that while I was reaching out to people for them to tell their stories, that anybody would even want to hear mine. I started digging through old scripts and storyboard ideas, and to be honest, most of them are steamy hot garbage. But there are a few that I dug out that I can definitely use. Episode 3 of the podcast is Wrong Turn, and that was based on the very first script I ever wrote, a short film that I had named Saturday Night Special, that I eventually fleshed down to a feature length. I had a Kickstarter for it and everything. I raised about $200, and I think it all came from my parents. Needless to say, it never saw the camera. I'm telling you all this because I want you to understand that during my episodes, the history portion is all based on actual reporting and folklore. The stories that accompany them are mine, but I hope I'm able to blur the line for you. I'm also telling you this because of what today's episode is. A number of years ago, I can't remember the exact year, but I wanna say it had to be sometime around 2010 or 2011. I had the brilliant idea to write a novel. It was a massive undertaking and something that I never finished. I was in way over my head at the time. What I was left with was a 300 page teal ledger with the outline of a novel written in a sloppy mixture of long and shorthand. A story about a family and the tragic mysterious events that begin on the eve of Halloween. This is something that I never thought would see the light of day and who knows, Maybe after this episode, the story of Zachary Christian Bain and his family will go back in the drawer, and they will only live as episode 7 of this podcast. Or, they will reoccur, and I can finally tell their story. That's entirely up to you guys. Alright, alright, alright. Enough rambling. Tristan, New York On a crisp, clear October morning, 15-year-old Zachary Bain was awoken by a crudely played version of Chopin's Funeral March on the piano coming from the downstairs living room. What his mother insisted was called the parlor. If he was being honest, it sounded like a bunch of pots and pans being thrown down the stairs. But if he told his sister that, it would hurt her feelings. And Zach wasn't about that. 10 year old Liddy was getting some early morning piano lessons in before school. Their mother Madge is a classically trained musician and Liddy aspires to be just like her mom, even though she'll admit she has some work to do musically. The Bain family is picture perfect. Zach is a tall, handsome boy with dark hair and deep brown eyes. He is also very athletic, playing both lacrosse and basketball for the school's varsity teams. He gets fantastic grades. He's very much a mommy's boy, but he puts on the loud, tough guy persona around his friends, but likes nothing more than to spend the night in playing board games with his family. Liddy is very much the yin to Zach's yang. She is quiet as she is small, with long, jet-black hair that she wears in a ponytail almost always. She's not outgoing like her brother. She'd much rather be home practicing music or reading than being outside and playing sports. She often brings her books with her to Zach's games, but secretly, she wishes she could be more like Zach. She looks up to her brother immensely. Madge and her husband John are a little advanced in years for having such a young family, with Madge being the younger at 55 and John seven years her senior at 62. They started the family late in life. They did the career first and are now retired. They never talk much about what they did for work, but the kids know that's where they met. Zach and Liddy think it was some kind of law enforcement due to the conversations Dad has from time to time when he receives calls from his old colleagues. Nowadays, John says he's in more of a semi-retired consulting role, but Madge says he just can't let go of the office gossip, and he's the only semi-retired person who isn't semi-paid. Instead, he just helps for free now. They are a kind, loving, although a little eccentric, perfect family. And they fit right in with their quaint little town that sits about 220 miles northwest of New York City and borders Pennsylvania. The town of Tristan looks like it was lifted out of a copy of Better Homes and Gardens magazine from 1955. The town square often gets compared to the one in Back to the Future, with their house sitting off the square at the end of a cul-de-sac. Tristan takes Halloween to the next level. They celebrate the holiday for a week, playing classic horror movies at the two-screen theater, holding contests for best decorated house, the middle and high school, which are combined in one building, encourage the kids to dress up in costumes all week with most of the teachers doing the same and on the eve of halloween the whole town celebrates with a halloween parade with floats balloons and a marching band the parade marches down and ends in front of the bane residents because they transform their house every year into the best haunted house the kids can't wait to see what their parents come up with zach doesn't understand how they do it they completely transform their home They start a few days before the parade, and by the time Zack gets home from school on the eve of Halloween, it looks like a completely different place. It's amazing. As Zack got up out of bed, he stood in front of his bedroom window that looked out into the backyard and gave a big morning stretch. That's when something odd caught his eye. There was a person standing in the far back corner of his yard, staring into his house. He wasn't sure at first if maybe this was part of the Halloween decorations, but that idea was dashed from his head when he saw the figure move. It was wearing a black cloak with the hood up over its head. When it glanced up in his direction, Zach quickly wiped the sleep out of his eyes, and by the time he was done, the person was gone. He thought maybe it was his imagination. He quickly got dressed and made his way downstairs. As he was heading down, he called out to his mother. Hey, Ma, did you see that there was someone in... His mom waved her arms at him in a shushing gesture and pointed to her dad on the phone. He was pacing back and forth in the kitchen, with the French doors closed, something he only did when he was on the phone with his old office. Madge smiled at Zach and mouthed good morning to him, just as the doors to the kitchen opened and Dad stepped through. I gotta run to the office and take a look at something. You're retired, John, Madge said with a smirk. I know, I know, I just can't help myself, John said while fighting back a laugh. I'll only be gone an hour. I'll be back before you finish your second cup of coffee, and we can finish setting up the haunted house, he said while crouching down and tickling Liddy's neck. Maybe Liddy has a bit of a cold today. She should probably stay home and help you until I get back. Liddy perks up with excitement. Really? Can I? Zack chimes in with, what the? Why can't I stay home? Because high school's harder to make up, Miss days, and because you will help for 30 minutes and then disappear to play Xbox. John says as he puts Zack in a headlock and messes up his hair. Come on, Zack. I'll give you a ride. Zack's morning at school started just like any other day. After his dad dropped him off, he met his friends on the ramp that ran along the side of the front steps. They hung out there goofing off a bit until the start of homeroom. Teachers and students were rushing around the halls dressed up in their Halloween costumes. The classrooms were riddled with vampires, zombies, Batman and Jokers, and a couple of dozen Harley Quinns. As he was making his way towards his math class at the beginning of his afternoon is when he first saw the figure in black again, standing at the other end of the hallway. His view was blocked by the stampede of students making their way towards their next class, but before he could be sure what he was looking at, the figure was gone. For the rest of the day, that's all he could think about. He was certain there was someone in his yard this morning, but could his eyes have been playing tricks on him at school? I mean, it is Halloween. People are in costumes. There's a possibility that he did see someone in a black cloak. Doesn't mean it was the same someone. He was in the middle of a daydream, sitting at his desk, thinking really hard about the figure he saw, when something caught his eye. It was the figure in black, and it was walking into his classroom. All attention in the class was drawn to it, and the lesson came to a halt. Zack let out a gasp and got noticeably fidgety in his seat as the cloaked person made their way into the center of the room and planted itself directly in front of Zach's desk. The figure reached up and removed its hood to reveal the school's principal, Mr. Washington. Now you see, kids, the Grim Reaper is just as frightening without his sight, as evidenced by Zachary's reaction. There are no weapons to be brought into the school with your costumes. Zack let out a sigh and sunk into his chair a little embarrassed the rest of the kids just let out a laugh. Mr. Washington let everyone know that he would reap them all into detention tomorrow night during the parade if anyone is caught on school grounds with a replica weapon before he excused himself to go have his fun with the rest of the classes. The end of the day dragged for Zach as he was so pumped to get home to see what kind of stuff his parents and sister came up with this year. The walk home seemed to take forever. He hurried through the neighborhood he loved so much and marveled about how the town really pulls together to decorate. Even the Aladdin, the old movie theater in town, was playing a double feature of both I Was a Teenage Werewolf and I Was a Teenage Frankenstein for the price of what it would have cost you in 1957, the year those two movies were released. One dollar would get you two tickets, two sodas, and a large popcorn. Pretty good deal. As he turned to head down the street, he could see his house from the corner. Being the only house on a dead-end cul-de-sac, it was hard to miss. He was smiling ear to ear, and he started running home. His house looked like it was in ruins. It looks like his parents decided on the abandoned house look this year. I mean, his parents always went all out, but this year was insane. Most of the windows downstairs were broken. Dad's car was even driven up onto the lawn. The driver's door was still open, and the car was running. That's a nice effect. The front door was wide open as he made his way up the stairs onto the front porch. That's where he noticed the blood. A trail of it leading from the front steps into the house. Furniture inside was smashed to splinters. There were holes in the walls and blood everywhere. Calling out to his family, he got no answer. It's when he made his way into the kitchen that that uneasy feeling he had in his gut turned to horror when he discovered the bodies of his parents. Mutilated, laying on top of one another in a puddle of blood thick with clots. His sister was nowhere to be found. Zach doesn't remember much about that afternoon. As far as he knows, he stood there in shock for an unknown amount of time. He must have called the police, but he doesn't remember dialing. From the day he found the bodies of his parents to the day of the funeral... His life was now a blur of police interviews. It was during this time that he realized he really didn't know much about his parents' past. They had no family that he knew of. He never had any aunts or uncles, and his grandparents were all dead before he was born. He was trying to be as helpful to the police as he could, but they weren't making much headway. He didn't even know what his parents did for work. He just knew they were retired. His law enforcement theory went out the window, when the detectives working the case told him that his parents have no record of working with any agency, foreign or domestic. The house was swept clean, and no fingerprints or blood was found that belonged to anyone else except the family. The phone call that Zach told the police his father received on the morning of the murders came up as a dead end also, as the phone records for all family members' cell phones and the house phone had no record of a call coming in at that time. The figure in black was brought up also, but the police brushed it off. Like the phone call, maybe the kid was misremembering things. He's been through some trauma, and the mind can start playing tricks. Liddy also hasn't turned up anywhere, but the police are hopeful friends and neighbors came to the wake and expressed their condolences. What was he going to do now? Where was he going to live? He was worried he would end up as a ward of the state and have to go into a group home or something like that. A man accompanied by one of the detectives approached him as he sat alone in the funeral home in front of his parents' closed caskets, claiming to be his parents' lawyer. He sat with the boy and explained him what would happen next and how he would have to come to his office to go over his parents' will. After the funeral was over, Zach was now truly alone. Zach was escorted from the cemetery directly to the lawyer's office, where they went over the will. Zach learned that all of his parents' assets would be liquidated, and the money would firstly pay for the funeral, and the rest would be put into an account for him that would be held in escrow until he turned 18. He also discovered that he would be placed in the custody of a Professor D of New York, New York, and that a car was currently on its way to pick him up. Zach had no idea who this person was, but it was right in front of him, written in black and white. As Zach sat around the office waiting for his ride, Looking through the handful of possessions that he had left, he started crying, thinking of his parents, worrying to death about his sister, hoping that one day he would see her again, hoping she was okay, that she wasn't hungry or cold. He was snapped back out of his thoughts when he heard the lawyer announce, Your ride's here. Sitting outside was a blacked out 1963 Lincoln Continental, with a tall, pale man standing by the back door holding it open. He spoke no words. He just took Zach's bag and placed it in the trunk, and then gently helped Zach into the backseat of the car. Once they were in and moving, Zach asked the man where they were going. He didn't answer. He just reached back and handed Zach a slip of paper with an address written on it. 39 Monroe Street, NYNY, was scribbled on the paper. The drive from upstate Tristan to Manhattan was a long one, and Zach passed out in the backseat of the enormous car almost instantly. He's been running on fumes for days now and really needed the sleep. During his rest, he dreamt of his family, saw his parents' faces and his sister playing. He was jolted out of his dream when he saw the figure in black and the flash of his parents' mangled bodies. He sat up gasping just as the car was coming to a stop in front of the destination. It was almost 4 a.m. The driver got out of the car and opened the boy's door and then made his way around the back to fetch Zach's bag. Zach got out onto an empty street. There was nothing on this block but shuttered businesses and an open Chinese restaurant named Ming's Palace. When Zach asked the driver where he has to go, the driver just pointed at the restaurant and handed the boy a sealed envelope, and the man just started getting back in his car. Zach, confused, started to nervously shout, Hey! Where are you going? You're just going to leave me here in the street? What am I supposed to do? Answer me! Why won't you answer me? The driver didn't even react. He just got in the car and drove off. Zach was now standing on the street of Chinatown in the middle of the night. He picked his bag up off the floor and extended the handle to wheel it behind him as he made his way toward the restaurant. Maybe this Professor D person lived above it. He went to the door next to the restaurant that led to the apartments above. Nobody with a D in their name at all on any of the buzzers. He decided to walk into the restaurant and ask the man behind the counter if he knew any of the people who lived there. Ming's Palace is the exact opposite of what the name suggests. A poorly lit storefront with stock food photos with numbers written on them are stuck up on the wall behind the counter. The flickering lights have an almost yellow tint to them that makes the entire place look like it's lightly coated with grease, which probably wasn't far from the truth. The counter was bookended by flypaper dangling down on each side covered with victims. Excuse me. Hi. Um, I'm, I'm looking for Mr. D. He, he's a teacher or something. The, the D might be an initial or his name might even be D, like D-E-E. The man doesn't even look at the boy. Hello? Sir? Zack, frustrated, just plops himself into one of the booths in the restaurant that's bolted to the wall and rests his chin in his hand. That's when he realizes he's still holding the envelope. He now takes the crushed paper off his face and looks at it. It has his name written on the front along with the address of the building. When he opens the letter, the small piece of paper inside simply says, Small vegetable fried rice. Hold the vegetables. And a large cream soda. No ice. Zach just stares at the paper. This this is a dream. It has to be. I'm gonna wake up, I'm gonna be in my bed, and it's gonna be Halloween, and everything's gonna be okay. Dad's gonna be making pancakes, and mom's gonna be playing the piano with Liddy, and we're just gonna be a family again. But he wasn't waking up. It wasn't a dream. He was sitting in a filthy Chinese restaurant at a quarter to four in the morning with somebody's insane lunch order. It was probably that weirdo driver's. At this point, though, what did he have to lose? He makes his way up to the counter and repeats the order to the man just the way it's written. No sooner did the words end that the man's face lit up with a smile. The man bowed slightly to the boy and said, Yes, yes, this way, please, and started gesturing to the boy to follow him behind the counter. What's one more strange thing to tack on to this night? Why not, Zack thinks to himself and starts to follow the man. The man brings Zack through the kitchen, the whole way looking over his shoulder, smiling and nodding at the boy. You come, you come, yes, this way, please. He keeps repeating as he opens the back door into an alley behind the store. The man makes his way to a banged up old dumpster and gives it a shove to the side, revealing a small cutout in the wall it was up against. The man urges the boy to, Hurry up, please, you're gonna be late, please. Zack makes his way to the opening and just looks into it. There's, there's nothing in there, the boy says as he stares confusedly into the darkness. Okay, enough, the boy says. What the hell is going on? But before he can turn around, the man gives the boy a gentle push. Just enough to knock him off his feet and into the hole. The man lets out a gleeful, goodbye please, as Zack plummets into the darkness. Looking up, he sees the light from the hole disappear as the dumpster gets pushed back in front of it before his eyes close and he passes out. When Zack comes to, he's laying in a pile of old dead leaves in a clearing at the mouth of a wooded area. He hears dragging footsteps approaching from behind, crunching in the leaves as it gets closer. When he turns around, he lets out a scream in terror as a decaying, festering ghoul is making his way towards him. Moaning out of a mouth that only consists of half a jaw and an eyeball hanging from a socket laying against its rotted cheek, yellow pus is oozing from the socket. Its three-fingered hand is reaching for Zack as he curls up into a ball terrified beyond the capacity for rational thought. The zombie creature reaches past Zack, picks up his bag? Zack opens his eyes and sees the creature clutching his bag in its decaying hands and starts shambling back in the direction it came. Zack takes a minute to catch his breath and check to make sure he didn't pee his pants before he gets up to his feet to follow behind the creature. They make their way out of the thick trees onto a gravel pathway. In front of them is an enormous wrought iron fence with these words written above the entrance. Helsing's Occult University for Supernatural Enlightenment. As he enters the fence underneath the words, he sees the grounds open up. And if he wasn't seeing this all with his own eyes, he would never believe it. It was crowded with people. But they weren't people. Well, they weren't all people. To his left, there were wolves. Up on their hind legs, wearing clothes and throwing a football. To his right, there were a bunch of kids dressed like the metalheads that went to his school. But he could have sworn one of them turned into a bat there were creatures that looked reptilian emerging from a moat that surrounded the biggest building he's ever seen. It looked like an old Victorian home, but on steroids. It had to be 40 stories tall, and it was as wide as 10 city blocks. Zack just stood there, with his jaw almost to the ground. At that moment, he heard a girl's voice say, you better close that sport. You don't want someone or something flying in there. As she walked by with what looked like an eight foot tall robot with a square head and electrode sprouting from its neck following behind. She shot him a wink and said, "'See you around, new kid.'" "'That's Shelly,' a small voice came from behind. Zack turned and saw a boy that could be no older than Eleven standing behind him. She's a fifth-year. That lumbering heap of parts behind her was Frankie. "'My name's Abe. You new?' Zack just stared at the boy blankly, mouth agape. "'Yeah, you're new.'" "'You're human, like me. "'There aren't many of us here, so you gotta be special, kid. "'What's your name?' Zack started to stutter. I'm, uh, I'm, z- z-. but before he can get his name out, there was an ear-shattering crack of thunder, followed by the most awful cackle of laughter. Everyone in the courtyard stopped in their tracks, and all eyes went to the sky. Off in the distance, traveling at an incredible speed, was a witch. Yeah, that was a witch, broom and all. She lowered quickly and came to a stop two feet from the ground in the middle of the children. As she stepped off her broomstick, it remained hovering above the ground. It followed her as she made her way towards the front steps of the building. She was ancient. Hair was a spider's web of tangled white straw. Her liver-spotted scalp was visible through the mess of it all. She was wearing a filthy black cloak. Her hands were covered in warts, and her fingernails were long and black with mold. She had one milky white eye in her left socket, and the other was as black as tar. Her teeth were a delicate shade of baked bean. While making her approach, she brought her hands up to her head and brushed the hair out of her face. But by doing that, her body transformed before everyone's eyes. Her posture corrected and she stood up tall. Her skin cleared and she seemed to age in reverse. Her filthy black cloak turned into a beautiful beaded black dress that clung to her young body. Her hair was now a gleaming bright red and her eyes were a stunning green. Once the transformation was complete, she stepped up on the first step and turned around abruptly. Everyone was clapping and joyfully whistling. "'Children!' she shouted. "'Settle down now. We've fooled around enough today. We must get everyone inside and placed. I'll be looking for my elder students to assist with everything. We have a big term ahead of us. This year is the year of the birthing ceremony, and I will have none of my pupils who are competing left behind.' We will be under a watchful eye this year, so I want to get it out of the way now, so none of you can say that you didn't know. There will be zero tolerance for misbehavior this year. I performed two banishments and an exile last year, and I have no problem doing that again this year. Do you hear me, Mr. Medwin? Her shout was directed at one of the wolves who was fooling around with the pack he was in while she was speaking. He stopped what he was doing and turned back into a child, maybe a year or two older than Zack. The boy replies, Yes, Madam Rosamond. Sincerest apologies, he says with a smug grin. For those of you still unfamiliar, I am Madam Elizabeth Rosamond, Head Mistress, Witch, and Den Mother for the Female Stoker Dormitory. And to those first year students, her eyes panned the children and looked directly into Zach's. Welcome to House. I'm Christopher Feinstein. And this is Haunted American History. Music by Kevin McLeod.